everybody, welcome back. This is my second self and I. I am Matt. Every now and then you might hear an echoey version of my voice come in the background. That is Alex, one of the many voices in my head. That's our pseudo co-host. Thank you to everyone who listened to me last week talking about one of the worst nurses ever, Janine Jones. She is a handful to say the least. This week I have my hands full with another lady that crime buffs may have heard of, Dorothea Puente. Also good news. After the last several weeks, I'm pretty certain now that anybody can be capable of anything horrible, whether it be man, woman, teenager, cult leader, literal son of a witch, or even in today's example, a little old lady. At least, that's what she wants you to think she is. Dorothea Puente, despite appearances to the contrary, was a vicious opportunist who wouldn't think twice at throwing you under the bus to get herself ahead in some way. She died in the Chowchilla Women's Facility of Natural Causes in 2011 and was 82 when she died, but there's a lot of things that happened before that, and I'm going to tell you all about them. Here's what to expect before we get going. This is a comedy show, or at least my attempt at one. I'm going to make jokes, say things in funny ways, I might have a character show up with a really cool commercial, I might start a cult, could be anything! Except for hateful. That's not what I'm trying to do. This is a fun show, okay? It's cool to laugh at stuff. Even when it's a show about murder involving an old lady. I mean, just the mental image of a four-foot-nothing old lady with white hair and big glasses holding a weapon of any kind is kind of funny. You know, kinds of gets a chuckle out of me. I, I, you know what? Actually, you know what? It just occurred to me. Um, that the little old lady in Looney Tunes that owns Tweety and Sylvester. That's kind of what this lady reminds me of. Kind of looks like her. So imagine her, but instead of Tweety and Sylvester, she has, like, way too many bodies of homeless schizophrenics in the backyard and stolen social security checks everywhere else. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same as a cartoon. If I remember, I'll upload some pictures to the Facebook page that you all should have liked by now. What are you doing? Or if you've already done that, preesh. And if I haven't scared you off with my chaotic energy yet, I've got a funny story about murder to tell you and not a lot of time to do it in, so let's get on out California way! Welcome, one and all, to the amazingly wonderful- Hey! The hell do you think you're doing? I was just reading the script. That was a rhetorical question. You go wait in the back. I think I know how I want the script read, okay? I fucking wrote it. Sorry about that, everybody. Sometimes you just get a co-host that just doesn't listen. Sometimes you just gotta be firm. Sometimes you gotta put your foot down. You gotta be strict. Alright, so where were we? Welcome, one and all, to the amazingly wonderful world of tomorrow that is Redlands, California in 1929. Yes, indeed, the land that time forgot is just brimming with futuristic technology from a bygone age. Probably gonna be a lot of that today. Really, though, Dorothea Helen Gray was born in 1929, just in time to usher in the Great Depression. Her parents' names were Jesse James Gray and Trudy Mae Yates, and they owned the general store in Redlands, which is basically Riverside, just, just outside of L.A. Wait, they owned a general store? No, but their names kind of sound like they could have, which is much more fun for me, because in reality, they were actually violent, abusive alcoholics. And to make matters worse, Mom was a prostitute, and Dad was constantly threatening to commit suicide in front of the entire family. Was her dad the sheriff from Blazing Saddles? Holding the gun to his own head. I'll blow the sheriff's head all over this town! Wait a minute, hold on. This is the 1930s. It would probably sound a little bit more like this. 
I swear to Christ Almighty up above, if you don't make tracks, would you get away sticks down to the gin mill and get me some hooch? I'm packing heat and I'm not afraid to fill my own head full of daylight. That's dead. Imagine your dad doing that. I'm imagining my dad doing that right now, and it's hilarious. You should try it. Then when Dorothy is seven or maybe eight years old, her dad had been kind of sluggish and weird for a few years, possibly from the rampant alcoholism, but more likely it was from the thing that killed him, which was tuberculosis. Probably didn't help that he drank a lot, though. That's, that's not really good for a lot of things. Unless you want to time travel. Alcohol is really good for time travel. If you don't believe me, don't go to work on Friday. Start drinking early. And then, this is the important part, stay with me. Don't stop. If you can do that, you're basically already halfway there, and then it'll be Monday again before you know it. On a completely unrelated but true side note, uh, keep an eye out for my new book that I co-wrote with the founder of Tito's Vodka, Unlocking the Secrets of Time Travel. So her dad died in 1937. Then the next year, her mom dies in a motorcycle accident after losing custody of all the kids. I think she was one of seven, which is probably too many. And Dorothea and the others are sent away in separate directions to all live in orphanages. I don't know if you know how orphanages work, but they don't generally have stellar track records for the treatment of their residents. Can I have some more? Now, we're out of food now. All we have left is... Violent sexual assault. Oh shit, uh, never mind, I'm not hungry. Too bad, dessert's mandatory! Yeah, orphanages were not great. So far, the only great part of this story is the era that we're in, and the other half of that is depression. But much like America, and for the same reason, her depression is temporarily cured in 1945. I am a word wizard! Dorothea was 16 years old when she met Fred McFall, whom was fresh off the boat back home from the fighting in the Pacific. Dorothy, on the other hand, had been trying to make a living as a prostitute, following in dear old mom's foot jobs. Footsteps. They're together for barely three years, but they did manage to have a couple of rugrats in that short amount of time. That's the greatest generation for you, coming home from the war and cranking out kids to revitalize America with a seemingly infinite supply of technologically illiterate citizens that berate the waitstaff after Sunday brunch. But neither parent wanted anything to do with each other or the kids anymore, so Fred left her in 1948. One kid went to live with relatives, and the other was put up for adoption and probably sent to an orphanage. She had a miscarriage at one point, too, which can't be easy for a struggling 19-year-old divorcee. In any case, she packs up her shit and moves back to Riverside in 1948 and starts doing riverside stuff she was arrested for trying to buy a bunch of stuff with forged checks and got four months in jail and three years of probation i was not expecting that steep of a sentence for 1948 california i guess it is basically check fraud though so i guess that makes sense i don't know so she gets out of jail after four months and six months after that she said you know what i need a new life i need a new identity i need a break I'm tired of Riverside and all these perfectly good businesses not taking my perfectly good forged checks full of other people's perfectly hard-earned money. I'm going to San Francisco to marry Sea Captain. That one's actually real. In 1952, she marries Axel Bryn Johansson, who is a merchant mariner in San Francisco. And that's the most Sea Captain-y name I think I've seen in a long time. Avast! It be Captain Axel Bryn Johansson, scurviest merchant on the bay. I'd keep going. I don't actually know what a merchant mariner does. Dorothy's taken up a new identity, too. Captain Axel doesn't know her as Dorothy, but as I'm trying, I'm gonna get this wrong, I'm sure, but 
Taya Singola, Singola Nearda, who was the name of her half-Egyptian slash half-Israeli alias. That should be a TV show. It's about a guy in Israel who's caught in the middle of some ridiculous international legal trouble on account of a case of mistaken identity, but then it turns out that he is the guy that he's looking for, and he's just really good at hiding, and it's called Israelius. I'd watch that. At least one episode. Dorothea probably would have, too. Seems like she likes irreverent comedy. She also likes gambling away all of her husband's money. While he was away doing whatever a merchant mariner does, she was busy gambling away all of his shit. Serves him right for treating me like that all the time. Yeah, their marriage was not great either. In 1960, Dorothy makes a left turn away from gambling and becomes a madam, which she is arrested for after the police find out that the bookkeeping firm she owned and operated was just the front for the brothel, and she does, drum roll, 90 days in jail. What a peach. Next year, Captain Axel's had about enough of her gambling away all his hard-earned boat money and has her committed. That, and she went on a vicious bender, which further fueled her criminal desires and ultimately led to a failed suicide attempt. While she was in the hospital, she was diagnosed as a pathological liar with an unstable mental condition. I love that. What's your official diagnosis? Liar! You're full of shit! I don't think you're really sick at all. No. Guys, the unstable mental condition part is the diagnosis. The lying is a symptom or a behavior that stems from that. Kind of missed the mark on that one. What? Moving on. I'm not sure how long she was in the hospital, but in 1966, she and the sea captain decided to go their separate ways, and now she's just going by Sharon Johansson instead of Taya, or her real name. But it's a new year. It's another new me. I've got another new name and a new lease and a new outlook on life, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to become a better Christian and open up a boarding house to help young women get out of abusive relationships. For free! I just want to give back. It's just something I think I was born to do. Awesome. That's really sweet of you, Dorothy. I mean, Sharon. We'll see how well she does at that in a little while. But first... Do you hear that? Fucking... What? Yes! In 1968, she meets and marries a man named Roberto Jose Puente. Their marriage was just as turbulent as all the others, and they do eventually get divorced in 63. He's kind of really only relevant today because that's where she gets the name as we know her now. Otherwise, Dorothy was just keeping up with the boarding house, taking in all manner of what she calls shadow people. Homeless alcoholics, people with mental disorders that can't find a job or decent housing, the abused or mistreated, people that needed a little extra help, not ghost entities. People that needed a little extra wind to help them figure out the next step. You know, sometimes that's all a person needs. She'd even host AA meetings and help people sign up for social security benefits. Quick sidebar. Sweet Jesus, AA meetings, oh my god. I only ever went to a couple, but good god are they ineffective. I know it's different for everybody, but honestly, the ones I went to were so depressing, I just ended up feeling worse. Like, fuck, I need a drink after this. And it's so defeatist. How can you have quit drinking for 15 years and you're still calling yourself a recovering alcoholic? No, you're still letting it control you if that's your outlook on it. I don't buy that shit. I'm not recovering. I recovered. Done. Buy alcohol. Where's my weed? I bet Dorothy stole it. Yeah, you're probably right. Probably stole it at the same time she snatched up $4,000 worth of social security checks from her tenants. Joke's on you, bitch. That was just swag. And now you got five years probation and have to pay all that money back. Ha! 
She is really not doing great in the almost 50-year-old bracket. I guess she's kind of going to lay low for a few years now, and we'll catch up with her in 1982, but first... Tell me what you think of this next sponsor. Listen up, chuckle butts. I'm Ron English. You might have seen my face on billboards around town. I'm the owner-operator of the Tickle Box, gently used adult novelty resale shop and bait supply. Whether you're looking for something new to spice up things in the bedroom or brand new lure to spice up things out on the water, you can come down here and see me, Ron English. Just make your way on down to the marina and follow the signs. You might have to push your way past a few dozens of dockings, but they pretty docile. Hell, this one time, I convinced one of them to buy a double-ended tandem fishing pole with a vibrating lure attachment that only had one previous owner. He said something about frequency resonations with something called a boxo lantern or something like that. I don't know. Look, my point is, whether you got problems at home you want to fix or problems on the water you want to fix, Ron English got you covered. I mean, where else could you buy a Bluetooth-enabled self-adhering nipple clamp that also doubles as stink bait? And it's certified pre-owned. I tell you what, if you can find a better deal, you bring them to me and I'll beat it. So tell all your lonely fishing buddies if they need to step up in life to come see me, Ron English, owner-operator of the Tickle Box, gently used adult novelty resale shop and bait supply. If you want to know more about who Ron English is, go back and listen to the Janine Jones episode. 1982 would bring the police right to Dorothy's door once again. One of her boarders, 53-year-old Ruth Monroe, was found dead one morning after apparently overdosing on Tylenol and codeine. Being that she was not in great health and with how much they found in her system, the cause of death was ruled as undetermined. That was in April, 82, and by August, Dorothy's back in jail again. I'm not so certain that Ruth's death was a suicide like she wanted us to think. After Malcolm McKenzie comes forward, he is a 74-year-old retiree collecting a pension check at Dorothy's house, and he, along with three other old people, claim they've been drugged by Dorothy and had their social security checks stolen. So once again, it's back to jail for Dorothy. She's gotta be getting pretty used to that by now. She'll spend the next three years behind bars, but don't worry, she's not alone. She has a buddy, friend, a pen pal. She somehow comes into contact with another sea captain named Gentleman, a man named Everson Gilmouth. It's spelled Gilmouth, but it's probably Gilmouth. Maybe he and Axel should have gone into business together. He picks her up from the prison when she gets out in 1985 in a bitchin' candy apple red Ford pickup truck. Hell yeah! And they proceed to blitz through all the early relationship stuff that you'd expect. Wedding plans, rings, vows, all that shit. She's very, very impulsive. But hold on. Before we do that, hold on. There's a bunch of shit wrong with the house. The walls are falling apart. There's railing on the stairs is missing slats. The ceiling leaks. The floor creaks. The water pressure's wonky. Lights flicker off and on all the time. I need a handyman. You know what? Hold on. I saw an ad in the paper a few days ago. Maybe I should just call that guy. Let's see. Where is... What was his name? Aha! I found it! Ismael Flores. Best handyman in California. She hires him to do some basic repairs around the house, wood paneling, lights, putting in a new shelf, sewing, laundry, you know, doing dishes, normal handyman stuff. What? Your handyman doesn't do... Look, if you have a handyman that won't hem up that seam, you need to fire him and find someone else, okay? A lot of them have contracts that say they have to do that, and if you ask, they literally can't say no to any request you make. The Handyman Labor Union has made a lot of really strict rules for their members, kind of like how a cop, if they're undercover, has to tell you that they're a cop. 
<laughs> All right, you got me. I, I, they, they, no, none of that. They might not have to sew things if you ask, but he definitely did install some wood paneling, and also cops don't have to tell you shit. But the wood paneling isn't the only thing Ishmael did while at Dorothy's house. Before he left, she made an odd request of him. She wanted him to build a box so she could store away her books and other things. But the dimensions of this box suggest otherwise. It was to be two feet by three feet by six feet for books and other stuff. Okay. He's probably just as confused. Hold on. Impromptu math lesson. That's 36 cubic feet of books. I wonder how many would actually fit in the box. Let's assume a uniform dimension for all the books we're putting into this box at 6 inches by 9 inches by 1 inches. That's an actual measurement. I didn't make that up. That will occupy 54 cubic inches of space. Now we have to convert the box to inches, which is... Holy shit! 62,208 cubic inches divided by 54. 1,152 books, give or take, could fit in that box depending on the size of the book and your Tetris skills. Also, turns out that the couch in my living room is almost exactly 6x3x2, but it's not quite 2 feet tall. One more fun fact, most couches are roughly those dimensions, 90 inches long, 38 inches deep, and 34 inches high. Who knew? My point is, it's a pretty goddamn big box for books. I don't know how Ishmael didn't figure that one out. And for his hard work, Dorothy pays him for the labor as well as an $800 bonus, and Gotta be tough out there without a vehicle, Ishmael. You know what? Tell you what, take the truck. She also gives him the red truck. But since you're still here, Ishmael, can I ask for one more favor? I need to get my new book box over to the storage depot across town. Think you could, you know, load it in the truck, give me a ride? He, of course, agrees, but on the way there, Dorothy changes her mind. Ishmael, pull over! I think it'll be easier in the long run if we just dump this box in the river. Ishmael's really confused by now if he wasn't before, but he's a handyman, so he does his job and he does it well. Okay, Mr. Puente, congratulations on getting out of prison, finding a new boyfriend so fast. That can't be easy to do in the crazy world of 1985. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got handyman stuff to do across town. Tell your boyfriend I said hi when he gets back from Los Angeles. Alright, he didn't actually say any of that that I can verify, but he might have said something close to that. Just, we'll go with it. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Seven. None of you! Seriously? Go after this. It's a great movie. Why am I asking you that, though? Well, if you'd seen the movie, you can probably see where I'm going with this. I have a question! The exact same question as Brad Pitt. I have to know... What's in the box? Come on, man, what's in the box? Pretty sure I've made a reference to that movie before, but whatever. A fisherman found the box on January 1st, 1986. Happy New Year's. He called the cops to investigate the suspicious package, and when they opened it, holy shit, it's the badly decomposed body of an unidentified man. Imagine the smell of opening... You know, never, don't do that. No, never mind. You know, after a separation... I would think the last thing I'd want is a bunch of their leftover shit lying around the house. I'd hate to be going through a drawer and find something of theirs that they'd forgotten that stirs up an old painful stanky memory. Unless it was a check made out to them and I had access to their bank account, which is exactly what Dorothy did. Everson continued to draw a pension check for the entire three years it took for them to identify his body from when they found him in the river. 
Dorothy somehow kept up appearances with his family by writing them letters saying that he hadn't been contacting them as he'd fallen deathly ill. Oh, if they only knew. And she likely did similar things to the other 40 residents that came and went during that time. How has she not been caught yet? Seems like there'd be a lot of witnesses to this shit. Oh, I'm sure there were, but that's not gonna stop Dorothy. See, she took the time every day to carefully manage her wardrobe and outward appearance. She wanted to look like the sweet old lady down the block that helped people because who would suspect her? Those big glasses, gray hair, and poofy clothes, all an elaborate ruse to trick people into thinking she's not a monster. And most of the people she cared for at the boarding house were people who were already on the fringes of society. People that, if they went missing, probably nobody or not many people would notice. Almost as if they were invisible or in the shadows. Kind of like Chief. He was another homeless man with substance abuse issues and a mental health disorder. Chief is the only name given for him. She claims to have adopted this man, whatever that actually means for her, but it seems like she just hired him to do some more questionable handiwork. Such as taking heaps of soil and dirt and trash from out of the basement, lying down a new concrete floor in the basement, and oh yeah, he dug up the backyard and poured a brand new concrete slab back there too. And just as soon as he finished up with that job, poof! Chief disappears too. I don't think he died though, I think he just left. Life must be pretty sweet for Dorothy right about now. She's got a revolving door of government checks coming through her door at all times, and her being who she is decided that she'll give all her boarders a stipend from their checks every month, and the rest goes to her so that she can keep up with expenses at the house. You know, like paying $800 for a couch-sized box full of books and her ex-boyfriend. Then in November 1988, things start to go a little sideways. Alvaro Montoya was pretty much the same as the other boarders at Casa de Puente. Maybe that's what she called it, I don't know. Another one of California's invisibles who'd been struggling with homelessness and alcoholism for the better part of about four years now. He was actually referred to Dorothy as part of a community outreach program, due in part to Dorothy's stellar reputation. Not to say that people didn't have their suspicions. At least 15 times, parole officers came by looking for people that had been staying at her house that had gone missing. All Dorothy would tell them is that they were friends or a welcome guest, not boarders. Sounds like a very grandmotherly thing to do, so they were satisfied with her answer and never pressed her any further on details. Until Alvaro. Remember, he was referred to Dorothy's. That means somebody took the time out of their day to make sure that he had a place to go, which means he probably also had a parole officer, or at the very least, somebody whose job it was to know where he is, and they weren't buying the bullshit that Dorothy was trying to sell them about him being on vacation. Oh, actually, I found her name. It's Judy Moyce, and she was an outreach counselor for Volunteers of America. Nailed it! She went to Dorothy's, talked to her about Alvaro being, quote, on vacation, and thought, No, this lady is full of it. He's not on vacation. You know what? Let's just go ahead and get the cops involved. This is way too much for one volunteer. Later on, she returns with the cops in tow, and Dorothy doubles down. In fact, this time... She had help from another tenant, John Sharp, and they both claimed Alvaro was just on vacation. We swear! Then as the cops are leaving, probably to go get a search warrant, John whispers to him. Psst, officer. Could you come over here for just a second? Look, 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 I don't want to cause any trouble for myself. Like, I'm only here for a little while to get back on my feet, but 
I've, I've been dishonest with you. I'm sorry. Here, take this. This note will explain everything. He slips them a note explaining that Dorothy had been making him lie to the cops to help her avoid them. That's probably going to be enough for a warrant. Which they do get and then return to the house a short while later and start going through stuff trying to find any kind of direction to go in. Not having too much luck inside the house, so they ask Dorothy, Hey, do you mind uh, if we dig up the backyard? I noticed you got some uneven soil back there, so we just want to make sure that, you know, nothing is going on and covering all of our tracks. Dorothy says, sure, no problem. Dig all you want. Tell you what, I don't want to get in the way of your investigation. I want to know what happened just as much as you did. I think the best thing for me to do would be to just go grab a coffee and let y'all do whatever it is that you do. Anybody need anything? Chief? Coffee? Donut? Slurpee? Want me to run down to the marina and see if Ron English might be able to get you something that might help you out? Alright, I'll just go get myself a coffee then. See you later, guys. And she tears ass out of the driveway and drives straight to the airport to get on a plane to LA. Which is fucking stupid because it's in the same goddamn state! What are you doing, Dorothy? Meanwhile, back at her... <laughs> Meanwhile, back in her house, holy shit, have the police made a discovery. Seven discoveries, to be exact. They unearthed seven bodies that have been buried in the backyard. In total, she killed about nine people that we know of. Leona Carpenter, 78. Ruth Monroe, 61. Alvaro Montoya, definitely not on vacation. He was 51. Dorothy Miller, 64. Benjamin Fink, 55. James Gallup, 62. Vera Faye Martin, 64. Betty Palmer, 78. And what's in the box? Everson Gilmuth, who was 77. That brings us to nine people. I'm not sure which seven were found at her house. I know for sure Everson was not. And uh, no idea on any of the other ones, but kind of doesn't matter. And it doesn't take long to find Dorothy and indict her for multiple murder. Yeah, she fled as soon as the cops brought out the shovels, but then she went from Sacramento to L.A., which is in the same state, Dorothy! and it's only about a six-hour drive, which is not a huge head start. Then she meets a man in a bar in L.A. and starts thinking, all right, maybe I can talk to this guy and get some something going on, have a conversation, and he immediately recognizes her because she's all over the news. You know, I might just start calling this lady the Tweety Bird Killer because she looks exactly like her. Like, the lady that owns Tweety Bird... Granny in Looney Tunes looks exactly like Granny. Now... You can't have a case like this and have the trial be in the county that it happened in. That's just asking for trouble. So her lawyers, Kevin Climo, Climo, C-L-Y-M-O, uh, I'm going to say Climo, and John Vlotten III pushed for a change of venue, which is granted. Trial was then moved over to Monterey County. That takes place in October of 1992. And I love all the names in this episode, by the way. Axel, Climo, Vlotten, Gilmuth. That sounds like that would be a law firm or an accountant office. Thank you for calling Axel Gilmuth, Climo, and Vlotten. How may I direct your call? The prosecutor, John O'Mara, called over 130 witnesses detailing how she killed each person, drugging them with sleeping pills, suffocating them, and then hiring ex-cons to bury the bodies in their backyard. And the defense has some witnesses too, but not nearly as many. They called upon some mental health experts and also her long-lost daughter to provide whatever mitigating factors they could, like how her abusive upbringing motivated her to help with the less fortunate or that she just has an evil side that was brought on by, quote, the stress of caring for her down-and-out tenants. What? The stress of caring for people brought out her evil side? What are you talking about? 
How many other good-natured people voluntarily put themselves in a high-stress environment and suddenly become evil because the workload is too much? Daycares, hospitals, psychiatrists, retirement communities, retail, food service, any other hospitality job should have way more blood on their hands by that logic. Waiters and hotel clerks should be stabbing people left and right. There is so much stress in a kitchen sometimes. And granted, sometimes tempers get heated in those environments. But the job isn't the thing, usually, that makes a person evil. They're usually already that to some degree by the time they start killing people. So if I'm reading this right, essentially they're saying that because she was raped and abused as a child, and because that motivated her to help people in life, if those people she chooses to help stress her out too much, it's okay to murder him? The ends justify the means and everything cancels each other out and we can just go home? We're done? Bye? See you next time? No, I don't think so. I don't like that. Well, I have a few lawyer quotes here, so let's see what they have to say about it in their closing arguments. We'll start with Omara, as his is short, sweet, and to the point. He says, Does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had a right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions. No house, no car, only their social security checks and their lives. And she took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty. Yeah, she's up for the death penalty, but no way in hell are they going to send a 63-year-old granny to the chair. Not to mention, women are very rarely executed anyway. And then Climo gets on the stand, and not only does he have a lot more to say, but then he goes the completely opposite direction with it. He says, We are here today to determine one thing. What is the value of Dorothea Puente's life? That is the question. Does she have to be killed? Vlatton spoke gently about Puente's childhood, touching on the traumatic aspects that shaped her life and urged the jurors to see the world through her eyes. You have heard of the despair of which was the foundation of her life, the anger and resentment. If anyone in the jury room tells you it was not that bad, ask them, would you want that to happen to yourself? Would you want that to happen to your children? I am led to believe if there is any reason for us to be living here on this earth, it is to somehow enhance one another's humanity, to love, to touch each other with kindness, to know that you have made just one person breathe easier because you have lived. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is why these people came to testify for Dorothy Puente. I think you can only truly understand why so many people testified I asked you to spare Dorothy's life only if you had fallen down and stumbled on the road of life and had someone pick you up, give you comfort, give you love, show you the way. Then you will understand why these people believe Dorothy's life is worth saving. That is mitigating. That is a human quality that deserves to be preserved. It is a flame of humanity that has burned inside Dorothy since she was young. That is a reason to give Dorothy Puente life without the possibility of parole. Great words. They certainly mean something. The reason for being on Earth is to enhance each other's humanity somehow. Great philosophy, and I do agree with that. Be kind to each other, help where you can. That's why I end the show the way I do. But for fuck's sake, man, Dorothy didn't help anybody. She stole from every single person she ever encountered in her life, especially the ones she was supposed to be helping, and then murdered at least nine of them while posing as the most non-threatening sweet little old lady on the face of the earth. How is there any part of what her life story worked out to be reflective of any sort of humanity-enhancing behavior? Man, I know he has a job to do, but the way he minimizes with his closing argument really bothers me. She fucking killed nine people that she was supposed to help. The jury's having some trouble with this, too. Remember in the last episode when I mentioned cognitive dissonance? 
The jury can't make heads or tails of what to do with this case for over a month of deliberations. It ends up being deadlocked 11 to 1. They can't quite swing unanimously on all counts. But she is eventually convicted of two counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances and one count of second-degree murder. She is sent to the Chowchilla Women's Correctional Facility, and she maintained her innocence until the day she died in 2011 at the ripe old age of 82. Ironically, surrounded by people in a high-stress environment whose job it is to care for people, uh, I know it's kind of a stretch, but just roll with it, and yet none of them turned evil and murdered anybody. There you have it, everybody. Tweety Bird Killer Dorothy Puente, or as she's actually called, the Death House Landlady. Let that be a lesson to you all out there. Don't believe everything that you see. Or you get a parking violation or a maggot on your sleeve. Beck lyrics, don't worry about it. Let's move on to the new segment where I give you helpful life advice or tell you about some other thing that you might not have known before. If it's not relevant now, just hold on to it. Maybe it'll become more relevant to you in the future. I think my biggest takeaway from this story is that old ladies are not to be trusted. We need to get rid of them all. Put them in their own little building with other old people where we can keep an eye on them and their shifty backstabbing ways. I know that's not your real hair, Ethel. But seriously, be nice to old ladies and old people in general. Most old people aren't deceitful murderers like Dorothy either. And don't just shove them in an old folks' home. Those places are just as bad as the orphanages sometimes. You know what? Just be nice to people in general. Take care of the people around you and what you care about. Maybe take a couple minutes, call your friend you haven't talked to in a while, and just say what's up. Might change their whole day. And don't take yourself too seriously. Alright, full disclosure, this one might just be for me, but sometimes saying it out loud makes it click better, so if this happens to resonate with somebody else out there, even better. But I sometimes, when I'm writing the scripts for these, I get bogged down in the details and trying to sound as professional as I can, which is good. I want to be accurate and detailed and professional. These are true stories after all, but sometimes I forget to just have fun with it. This isn't an investigative show or an expose piece. I'm just a goofy dude who likes reading crime and making jokes. And when I can dial myself into that character, the goofy crime narrator, it gets so much easier to write. For example, this episode was a blank word document 24 hours ago. I don't usually have time to write a whole episode in a day because I have a full-time job too, but, but I got into a groove, and I think not taking myself too seriously kind of helped with that. And one other thing before we go... Go see Ron English if you're ever in Sacramento. I hear that guy has really good deals on bait and tackle supplies, as well as other stuff. I love that little whoosh sound, by the way. Thank you, everybody, for listening to me yell at you through your car speakers for a little while, or wherever you listen to this. If you like the way I tell stories, or if you just like the sound of my voice, and want to tell other people about the sound and quality of my voice, do me a solid! Go into whatever app you're listening on, leave me a rating or a review, or a comment. Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, they all have them now. I'm pretty much everywhere else too, so if you have the ability to do that, I'd greatly appreciate the extra help. Or if you don't want to do any of that because you're lazy or just can't for whatever reason, tell your friends. Tell your boss at work. Scream it at old ladies in the grocery store. Hey, check out this podcast! Probably don't do that, but tell whoever you can that I'm doing funny shit over here and they should come check it out. I hope you all enjoy this little added bonus mat time to your week. I'll be back again on Sunday, and that one will definitely be Joanna Dennehy. Later, taters. Stay kind.